You're with Cape Talk. This is John Matham on Afternoon Drive. It is 18 and a half minutes to 4 o'clock. We have Newsroom Africa on the television in the studio, and it has a breaking news banner saying ANC gives Niehaus an ultimatum. ANC has given Carl Niehaus until 4 p.m. to give reasons why he should not be fired as an employee. No schadenfreude from you, Rebecca Davis, I'm sure. Good afternoon. You know I have a soft spot for Mr. Niehaus, the perpetually misunderstood martyr Carl Niehaus. No, John, I do think that um, I don't really understand what the NC can do, Jim, that they haven't already. And I just would really like to see a forensic audit of Mr. Niehaus's bank statements because he is certainly getting money from somewhere and I just want to know where it is. I have suspicions. I have suspicions around KwaZulu-Natal, but yes. Yeah, because he... Uh, he's not alone a voice in the wilderness, but he is the most loudly raised voice in the Jacob Zuma-related wilderness at the moment. Well, that is because, of course, he told me that Jacob Zuma was the only p- person who came to visit Carl Niehaus in prison and when he was the last ever prisoner waiting to be released, which I was subsequently told by other political prisoners is complete nonsense from start to finish. There you have it. (laughs) Complete nonsense from start to finish. Now we should put that on as an epitaph on his headstone when he eventually leaves. The IEC's uh, numbers earlier today, donors to political parties, they told us that a total of just more than 30 million rand in tranches of more than 100,000 rand had been donated to the only three parties that achieved this milestone, the DA just over 15 million, the ANC just over 10 million, and Herman Mashaba's Action SA over 3 million. And I wondered aloud if he had donated that to himself. What do you make of the numbers? Anything of interest in there for you? He did donate to himself. At least there is a sizable chunk in Action Essays funding, which is straight from Black Like Me Holdings, which I assume is Mr. Mashaba's basically personal bank account. Uh, it is interesting, John, that only the ANC, the DA and Action SA claim they have received donations above 100,000 rand. It is not implausible, I think. Don't forget it is only for a certain reporting period, which is the first financial quarter. And given the economy, given the general lack of faith in politicians, voter apathy, etc., I don't find it that hard to believe that funding in general may be dropping. But I do wonder whether the IEC will take that at face value or try to follow up a little more on that. It said in its uh, statement that it had it wasn't just that parties didn't return statements. It had in writing assurances from parties that they had not received any donations above 100,000. For me, the standout point is how the DA is being single-handedly bankrolled by the Oppenheimer family. Ms. Mary Slack donating 15 million rand to that party. And that is interesting, of course, because 15 million rand is actually the threshold. You can't donate anymore. So it may actually have been the case that in previous years, Mary Slack was giving the DA way more than that. So that is really a sign. I mean, it's a, it's a 
stunning indication to which the DA is beholden to one individual and one family. And, of course, other political parties will make much of that as we head towards the local government elections. They will, of course. And I'm not insinuating that Mary Slack, God bless her, is, you know, putting any strange influence on the DA to take a particular policy position. But there are obvious dangers inherent in being so dependent on one funding source, as the DA no doubt knows. The other takeaway, John, is this sad, sad, I mean, really rather tragic of the Multi-Party Democracy Fund, which was set up in the naive hope that South Africans, with all their love for politicians, would just take it upon themselves to donate money to this fund, which would then be split up among political parties. Turns out only one person in South Africa donated 2,500 rand to the Multi-Party Fund, which is the former head of ITASA, um, who obviously is very committed to democracy and really blessed that man. But the IC says it's very disappointed because it really thought South Africans would open their hearts and wallets. And I say, IEC, what are you smoking? Obviously, none of us are going to give money to political parties at this stage of the game. Who got, um, and who gave the ANC money? Who gave the ANC money? Um, its own investment fund, Chancellor House, basically is rerouting money to itself in some complex scheme. There's some mining houses, and I've yet to properly check the origins of other funds. There's a couple of um, businesses with names I don't recognize. So nothing I can flag as being particularly interesting as yet, but I will certainly be looking into it further. There's only about five donors in total. So, I mean, we're talking in total about a very, very small pool of businesses and people who are effectively keeping these parties going. I mean, look, please, I'm not alleging in any way that this happened. I'm merely putting this forward as a speculative example. Um, Adrian Mazzotti didn't want it to be known that he continues to donate money to the EFF. So he gave the EFF 99,999 rand and 99 cents. N- n- yeah. And yep. he asked one of the other people from the Carnilex group of companies, the, um, that part of our tobacco industry equally gave 99,999 rand and 99 cents each. It seems to me that one of the weaknesses of the system that we have, and it's, I'm glad we have a system at least, is that 100,000 rand is, is quite a high bar above which you have to declare. It is a high bar. I suppose the counter-argument would be that politics is very expensive. Campaigns are very expensive. There's actually not that much you could do with 100,000. I agree there will always be workarounds, John. I mean, just consider the ways in which people you know probably get around the tax laws in this country and then consider, you know, the devious signs of politicians and their financial advisors. I'm sure there's all kinds of skullduggery going on, just as you've outlined there. But I do think that it will be more difficult to give large, large sums of money from a single source without it somehow coming out. And I'm really glad about that. And, you know, it disappoints me that the DA was anti this legislation because in general, I just think it is such a good thing for transparency. And given that the DA appears to be benefiting more than any other party from donations, clearly their arguments that their sources of funding would drop because people wouldn't be, want to be seen to, to fund the opposition seem, I mean, as far as we can see, invalid so far. I mean, part of, part of the discussion around why the ANC was in such a mess with its candidate lists and so on is that funding has, has dried up. Companies have, who would previously, when the donations were secret, would have donated in excess of 100,000 rand are no longer doing so. And it's going to take time, I think, to work out 
all of the implications of this legislation. I like your suggestion very much, Rebecca, of vaxxing and voting. It seems so obvious to me that I'm surprised it hasn't actually become policy yet. In many other countries, it's been suggested that when they were trying to set up uh, vaccination stations, they should use old polling stations. So the converse is also true. Why on earth don't we use what are going to be our polling stations as vaccination stations come 1st of November? This is not to suggest that you have to get vaccinated before you vote, before anyone gets all hysterical about that. And there are people who will probably say that any association between, you know, a free franchise and the vaccination is totally unacceptable. I'm merely saying for the sake of public efficiency, if nothing else, would it not be a good idea, particularly in areas which we know uh, have been, uh, there's been a low take up of vaccinations, Mitchell Plain, Kailicha, et cetera, would it not be sensible to offer vaccinations at the site of voting? The only problem, John, is the voter turnout, which is likely to be so depressingly low. I mean, consider that voter turnout is always low for municipal polls and then add a couple of factors. Add the fact that COVID will dissuade some voters from going out, no question. Add the fact that the polls are on a Monday for the first time ever. They're normally on a Wednesday. And add the general mood of kind of apathy, I think, and you're you're heading for, I think, a record low turnout. But even be that as it may, I think it would be surely worth a shot to pair it with a vaccination attempt. I'm speaking to, I usually speak to Alan Windy at five past five every Thursday to get an update on the province's COVID situation. He is in another meeting, so I'm speaking to Sadiq Karim, the head of uh, operations for the department, and I'll put it to him. There might well be practical matters in terms of numbers and storage and you know the logistics mm-hmm. which would make it difficult but I'm, I'm i certainly will put the suggestion to him and i'm interested to hear what his response might be as, as will i be john thank you somebody says just love you rebecca a real wonderful lady indeed <laughs> a lady you say how kind <laughs> listener not a four-letter word which is often applied to you i believe no that's right yeah and then Alexander Zverev, who beat South Africa's Kevin Harris at the U.S. Open yesterday. You mean Lloyd Harris? Lloyd Harris. Sorry. The yeah. confusion is understandable, given our only two good tennis players. Oh, Kevin Garin and, yeah. yeah. Um, Anderson, wow, you're really just in a mess today, John. Um, Lloyd Harris was indeed beaten by Alexander Zverev last night, and Zverev had some dubious techniques, including a long break while he demanded that the screen be moved just as Lloyd Harris was about to serve for the first set. So I'm angry about that anyway. But the point is that Zverev has been rather plausibly accused of domestic abuse, serious domestic abuse, by his former girlfriend, who is a Russian woman. And the question is, what on earth should we do about this? It's actually a very tricky one, John, because it's not the case, for instance, that Zverev plays for a team like a footballer or a cricketer, in which case he could be sanctioned by, you know, his own body and the coach could say, this is good PR for our team. We need to drop him. Tennis players are independent contractors. So it's hard to know whence the sanction, if there is one, should come. Adding to the situation is the fact that the girlfriend doesn't want to lay charges. She just says she's told the story as, I don't know, an example to other women that they should leave abusive relationships. And in the middle of this, Vera claims it's all rubbish, even though there really is some hard evidence, including photos, WhatsApp, etc., suggesting that she is telling the truth. So we have this rather repugnant situation where we have this, you know, multi-million dollar tennis player continuing to perform every week without any detriment. 
we have these allegations hanging over his head, which also, I mean, isn't really fair in as much as they have yet to be properly ventilated. And clearly what is needed is some kind of a policy. And it's astounding that this hasn't actually happened previously in tennis, or maybe it hasn't just been swept under the rug, that what should happen? Also, it, it applies equally to sports like golf, I suppose, where you're just an independent player. What should happen when you're accused of a serious crime, effectively, and... Um, you know, there isn't necessarily a body responsible for disciplining you. What would be your answer? Because I, 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 the the decision here is is kind of in the hands of the sponsors. Uh, should the sponsors be sending more of a message that they believe the allegations credible enough? for them not to want to spend, and in Alexander Zverev's case, it's almost certainly literally millions of euros a year on buffing up his finances. Uh, Yeah, that's an interesting point, John, and certainly sponsors have been kind of talking with their wallets and withdrawing from Zverev, but not in a very public way, in a kind of more sub-rosa way. Um, There is a clause within the associated, what's the ATP, the ATP kind of constitution, which says that no tennis player is allowed to assault another player or spectator or official on tour property or within tour grounds, which can actually be stretched to cover this because apparently these assaults happened within official tournament hotels. So that is one potential way in which you could kind of twist the wording of something that clearly is supposed to protect something totally different and use it to protect women. But, but if, seem- she, if she does not want, and we, we're, we're not in a moral position to try and force her to take it further than sharing her story in the way that she has already, if she is not prepared to attest to an affidavit or whatever the case may be, then it becomes very difficult about how you handle it. You... <laughs> You yeah. have to, in a sense, I think you have to kind of go, the allegations are there. Um, for some people, they will always sour their appreciation of whatever tennis gifts he brings to the court. But what else? Yeah, and it's a similar to the quandary we have around artists, you know, the Roman Polanskis, the Woody Allens, and so forth. And it also, you know, it begs questions about the degree to which you can take private lives and punish them professionally. If somebody finds out that I, you know, am abusing my wife or whatever, should they put pressure on my work to fire me? I mean, that's effectively what we're talking about. And of course, the stakes seem much smaller when it's an ordinary citizen like me. But blow that up. And that is what we're talking about. I don't think there are clear answers, John, but it is clear that there's a gap somehow that needs to be plugged. Uh, Pippa was a couple of weeks ago. I'm not sure how the subject came up, but somehow the subject of VHS tapes and who still has them and who still watches them and who still has them but no longer has a VHS player. And it it was extraordinary, the response to it. There's there's obviously a, a deep well of VHS nostalgia amongst the Cape Talk listenership. That astonishes me, and I'd be very interested to hear from your listeners why exactly. I mean, other than the medium merely conjuring a, an earlier time in someone's life. Perhaps you were young and making out on the couch with your first girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever. But the actual technology of VHS tapes is rubbish. Don't, I, don't, I mean, I will fight anyone who claims differently. However, there is this apparently growing movement, the free blockbuster movement, um, which turns abandoned newspaper vending boxes in the USA, in Canada, and in Australia into mini-libraries for those wanting to borrow or lend 
VHS tapes. So that would be people, I suppose, who still have working video players, which is a small fraction of the population. But hello, mum and dad. I know that's you. Um, yeah, because most of us, I think, would have simply have no way to play a video these days. I certainly don't. Do you, John? I do have a machine. I'm not sure whether it is still functional because I haven't tried to use it for... I don't know, since uh, the kids stopped wanting to watch The Lion King. But, uh, so I my, my, I, but you must agree, Shirley, that there's nothing inherent about that technology. It's not like vinyl. I mean, vinyl has obvious advantages, you know, that lovely soft crackle. They hit the timbre of the music. Surely none of those would apply to the technology of VHS. I mean, I'm, my mind would be blown to hear that that was the case. Mine too. Rebecca Davis, thank you very, very much indeed.